one of the biggest challenges I feel that we have as an industry around AI is, you know, how we design interactions around AI products. And there's, at least in the world of B2B SaaS, and especially in the go-to-market side, at the frontier between marketing and sales, there's these two AI personalities that are almost like constantly conflicting, right? There's the police AI and the buddy AI. And the idea is that a police AI is something that is designed to figure out what the right action is, regardless of what you're trying to do. Right? And a buddy AI is rather an AI that's going to make recommendations. So it's telling you what to do. It's suggesting it. And this is just a kind of design and UX perspective. But what's really interesting is if you take lead scoring, right? So marketing is saying, hey, sales, like these are good leads. You should go after them. But from a sales perspective, the last thing they want is a UX with an AI behind it that's telling them what to do. If you're pushing a police AI onto a sales team, you're very likely not going to get any adoption. And at the end of the day, you might not, you might as well not have an AI. If no one's going to use it, then it's not serving any purpose. Welcome to the Conversations on Applied AI podcast, where Justin Grammons and the team at Emerging Technologies North talk with experts in the fields of artificial intelligence and deep learning. In each episode, we cut through the hype and dive into how these technologies are being applied to real-world problems today. We hope that you find this episode educational and applicable to your industry and connect with us to learn more about our organization at AppliedAI.mn. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone, to the Conversations on Applied AI podcast. Today, we'll be talking with Francis Brero. Francis is an aspiring hands-on T-Rex, obsessed with levering science to improve efficiency and effectiveness. He is a data scientist converted to sales along the way. Currently, he helps B2B SaaS companies get the most out of their inbound pipelines by automating the high-cost, low-leverage work of researching, qualifying, and engaging leads. He's the co-founder and CPO at MadKudu. MadKudu helps SaaS companies increase conversion rates, upsell, and aid in customer retention. It analyzes customer behavior in your app and enriches leads with relevant data to find out what truly makes people engage. It then predicts, which is a word that we like here on the podcast, which customers you should engage with and tells you why and when. Finally, it recommends actionable next steps to increase conversion and engagement. Sounds like a super exciting product, and our listeners are definitely looking forward to learning more about this during the podcast. Thanks for being on the show, Francis. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I, I'm really excited to dive into your product, but maybe uh, you give us a little bit of background, kind of, kind of how you got to where you're at. I started my academic background in fundamental mathematics and kind of along the way started discovering the beauty of applied math and statistics with a lot of like operations research and started to kind of dive into, into data science. And fortunately enough, I was able to find a job in the U.S. because I come originally from, from France. That job led me to really discover uh, applied data science in a business context and to dive you know more into the complexity of the third V in the three Vs of big data, right? Everyone talks about velocity and volume, like the kind of problematics that Facebook, Twitter have to deal with, like massive data coming in at incredible speed and having to build predictions really quickly on top of. But very seldom do we talk about the third V, which is variety. And that is the one that enterprise companies struggle the most with because they have this like wide variety of data. It's structured, but it's very sparse. There's a lot of missing information and a lot of what you learn in school of like applying all these like cool mathematical concepts don't necessarily work on top of those enterprise data sets. You're really confronted to 
having to run data science and spending a lot of time on what I call the janitorial work of data science, so really cleaning the data set, increasing signal with future generation and not just like pushing everything into some kind of neural net or whatever, like magical algorithm. And, and that was really my first kind of, I would say, interesting confrontation with the real world, right? Discovering that the data sets that we were given in grad school were, yeah, they were tailored to teach you to build SVDs or whatever kind of algorithms. But in the real world, at least in the world of enterprise, the data sets are much harder to extract signal from. And there's a lot of business acumen that needs to come into play to be able to, to build that. So anyway, that was kind of the, the big discovery during that those few years at a company called Agile One. So we were fortunate enough to move to the Bay Area, raise like our Series A with Sequoia, raise a ton of capital, grow the company, and then kind of decided to go my own way and start MathCoup, where the goal was to help companies be able to, as you mentioned, right, like leverage their data and essentially have a tool that is almost the data scientist for the go-to-market team. So really helping democratize data science in an area of the business that typically doesn't have a data scientist, right? You don't want your marketing team to have to hire a data scientist just to be able to understand what's going on in the business. I think it's interesting, you know, you're, you're actually talking to somebody who actually majored in math and applied math in specific in college. And for, for me, I, I, I joke that I, I kind of didn't really see the value in solving for X. I really wanted to apply it to something, right? So when I solved that mathematical equation, like what does that actually mean in the real world? And I think you're right, there's a lot of contrived problems that happen in school, but actually getting out and getting your hands dirty is uh, one of the, <laughs> the janitorial work. That's what you're saying is to sort of get stuff all set up. And then there's definitely a, a big difference between what, you know, like I have a bunch of friends from my program who ended up at Facebook, Twitter, and things like that, like running data science teams there. And definitely that's where like understanding how to run stochastic gradient descent and like these kind of things are, are really critical and, and important because of the size of the data sets. But for, you know, 99% of the companies out there, the struggle isn't in picking a computationally powerful algorithm. It's really about knowing how to look at the data to extract signal from it to be able to, you know, solve for X. How big is your company? And, and give us a timeline with regards to when you did, you know, move to the Bay Area and, and sort of get things going when you saw the need in the market. Yeah, so I moved to the Bay Area and 10 years ago. We started the company five years ago. We have 30 employees. Uh, so spent a few years like on the R&D side of trying to figure out what are the big challenges that B2B companies have when it comes to their data on the go-to-market side? And how do we package a solution that both does the, a good job at predicting and is also intelligible? Because one of the things that was really interesting was in B2B organizations, go-to-market teams are very reluctant to adopt something that's a black box, right? They, they want to understand why a given uh, recommendation was made, why a given prediction was made, especially when you're you know, in the realm of B2B where every single um, conversion is you know, a pretty significant order. It's not like B2C where you might have like a lot of transactions and it really becomes a, a numbers game. So I, I tend to compare it to the difference between low and high frequency trading. In the world of high frequency trading, really algorithms are the thing that are going to make the difference, right? It's really about like, can your algorithm like predict faster and like predict more minor increments? And that's going to yield a ton of value because you're making so many predictions. But when you're looking at 
longer term and lower frequency trading, if you look at how people do that, there there's a lot more business sense that comes into it, like how you analyze the data and how you do that is very different. So that was like a big part of trying to figure out what it is that we can do to analyze the data properly to then package it into a product. And so we kind of came out of, I would say, like stealth mode uh, about a year and a half ago with now a product and a data studio that our customers can go in and actually build these segmentations and predictions directly in there with an interface that is like easier to understand for people that don't necessarily have, you know, a math degree and haven't necessarily built a regression in their life. For sure. Now, are you guys needing to get into the world of like deep learning and machine learning or or does can most of your stuff be done with, like you say, sort of standard gradient descent? Yeah, it's a great question. So deep learning, uh, we stay away from anything that is going to introduce these kind of like hidden layers. So anything like a neural net or things like that, where it's very, very hard to explain. Like, yeah, you need an explanatory model to explain your result. It creates a ton of overhead. And again, like the, the volumes of data are not big enough towards going down that path. We've actually done a ton of iterations. Like, And one of the things that we found to work really well is like small random force, or even like think of one type of decision tree where decision trees are very easy to understand, right? Because like these binary decisions that lead you down one path and then you create a homogeneous group and you can look at what is the typical outcome for people that fall into this decision. It's easy to understand, okay, if we get a new input, our prediction is basically seeing where would this new data point fall into and what was the historical performance in there. And we can kind of assume that, you know, their performance should be similar. So it's it's a very intuitive algorithm, but it is also very powerful. So three iterations, that's like one of the, for example, like one of the most frequent styles of algorithms that we use. Gotcha. For sure. I mean, yeah, why why bring in something that is, like you said, more of a black box you don't really even understand? And there's so many different dials and knobs you can tweak when you're talking about neural nets if it's not really needed. Do you guys kind of provide a library that I can add to my app? Is this more of a mobile-based solution or are you sort of tracking clicks through, through people's websites? Tell me a little bit about how somebody would integrate your product, I guess, into, into their existing offering. We essentially, that's why I was saying we're a data studio for go-to-market teams. So the idea is that we sit on top of whatever data you have. So either on top of like your Snowflake data warehouse plus your CRM, your marketing automation platform, connect all of that data into one place and allow the go-to-market teams to go in and build these predictions or segmentations on top of that data and propagate the results back into, you know, the data warehouse, CRM, marketing automation platform, and the website. So really the idea is to be to be sitting there. So we don't really track any data ourselves. We leverage the data that uh, companies have. And we we have third-party providers that help us like enhance the data to reduce data sparsity and increase kind of the yeah, the number of dimensions that we have. Cool. Yeah, because oftentimes people, they'll, so it's up to them to collect their data. And then you guys, like you said, they'll start, you know, you, you help provide these tools to allow them to get a lot more insight into how they should be leveraging that data in the best way possible. Exactly. And there's a big component around there that I think is one of the biggest challenges I feel that we have as an industry around AI is you know, how we design interactions around AI products. And one of the big components that we've been pushing a, a lot on is there's, at least in the world of B2B SaaS, and especially in the go-to-market side, at the frontier between marketing and sales, there's these two AI personalities that are almost like constantly conflicting, right? There's the police AI and the buddy AI. And the idea is that a police AI is something that is designed to figure out what the right action is regardless of what you're trying to do. It, 
it's kind of cold. It's telling you, this is what you should do because based on historical data, we recommend you do this to maximize your outcome. And a buddy AI is rather an AI that's going to make recommendations. So it's potentially doing the exact same thing in the background, but instead of telling you what to do, it's suggesting it. And this is just a kind of design and UX perspective. But what's really interesting is if you take a simple example of lead scoring, right? So marketing is saying, hey, sales, like these are good leads. You should go after them. Marketing wants to perceive this AI and intelligence as a police AI. They want to be able to tell sales, these are the leads or accounts you should go after. These are the ones you should ignore. But from a sales perspective, the last thing they want is a UX with an AI behind it that's telling them what to do. They want to have an AI that's giving them a superpower and say, hey, this is actually probably a better use of your time than this one because X, Y, and Z. And that is going to drive more adoption from their perspective than, you know, just telling them what to do. And I feel like that is something where there's still a lot of work and a lot of research to be done in the AI community to make sure that we have clearly documented kind of UX concepts and AI personalities for different types of interactions. We have some of that in the B2C space, but I feel in the B2B side, it's not as clear. So it is something that we spend a lot of time on because if you're pushing a police AI onto a sales team, you're very likely not going to get any adoption. And at the end of the day, you might not, you might as well not have an AI. If no one's going to use it, then it's not serving any purpose. That's a great point. I mean, kind of use the AI where it can provide the most value to people, which oftentimes is maybe in the mundane area of things, but not actually override them, I guess, what they want to do. And, and, and you're right, maybe, maybe as consumers, we're getting a little bit more used to this. Maybe having, having uh, Alexa or Google or whatever, Siri, uh, you can sort of ask it questions. It probably feels a little more buddy-ish, but maybe in the B2B world, again, I'm just sort of riffing here, Maybe in the B2B world, it definitely needs to be explained a little bit different and probably applied in a lot of different ways. I, I had, I've never heard of it sort of thought about that way, but it makes a ton of sense. And then there's definitely different levels of, I guess, affinity to AI in different contexts. I think even if we look at, you know, self-driving cars, right? people have very, very mixed opinions around that. And some of them want to have the car potentially like assist. And it's like a drive assist is going to tell you, oh, it, you know, you're going over the lane. I'm just going to give you a little warning. So you're still in control. And then there's like people who are strong believers. I just want the car to drive, you know, in my stead. And I believe the car is going to make better decisions. So really in that kind of police AI. What's interesting is that very often what leads to that affinity to like the full on police AI is going to be your assumption as to how good your decision making is. And, and not to, you know, say anything bad about salespeople, but one of the very common things, like salespeople very often think they know their customers better than their marketers. Not saying if it's true or not. In some cases it is, in some cases it isn't. But that's why they're going to have a much harder time adopting something that's coming in as saying, hey, this AI knows the customer better than you do. That's like very, it's a very hard pill to swallow. And from a design perspective, if that's how you're designing your AI, you're just like running against the wall. Like you, nobody is going to like, or at least that customer is not going to adopt your product. So thinking of the the design and how we drive adoption based on the customer is something that we absolutely need to think about. And I feel like a lot of the AI products have been built by very strong engineering background people who kind of see it really as the police. No, the AI is the right solution. It's better but they're not realizing, well, you still have to think about your end customer and the end user and what is the incentive for them to adopt it? And if they don't adopt it again, you might as well not build it. And that's something that I feel in the AI community is not discussed enough on how we can explain 
why a given, you know, recommendation was made and, and all that kind of stuff. So th there's something around that that really needs to be thought through a lot more in the community. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in, in some ways it's just, it, the AI is just a tool and depending on how we use it, it can be adopted or not adopted. And uh, I'm reading this book called A Thousand Brains. It's interesting. This, this, guy, this, was the, this was the guy, I've referred to this on prior podcasts, but I'm kind of, my, my mind's deep into it right now, but it's written by the guy that started Palm Computing. And it was funny in the book, he shared a story about him at Intel in the early nineties, talking about handheld computers, obviously precursor to the Palm. And he had, he had started the company, but he, they were by no means known by anybody at all. And it got a lot of pushback from management at Intel saying, well, what are we going to use these handheld computers for? Because at, in the early 90s, it was all just word processing, right? That's, that was the only concept that people had was like, well, why would I write on a little ta tablet computer, you know? But the problem was, was like people were viewing the problem from the existing viewpoint of what are our current problems today, and so they weren't thinking about the whole, I mean, the internet hadn't been involved. You know, there was no photos, you know, there was, there was no camera on a phone. You know what I mean? There was no social media. There, there, there wasn't all this other stuff there. So it's like, you know, as technology evolves, then the problem or the solution that you're trying to solve, you know, you, you're actually bringing in the wrong tool set. So I'm, as you were talking, I was thinking about this, like we might actually be, I, I believe, we're, we're in the way infancy of this. And we kind of have this tool that we're thinking about current world problems that we have today. But the reality is in the next five to 10 years, there's going to be a huge explosion of all these other things that we didn't even know were coming down the line. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and that's true in, in a scary way also, right? Because even if we look at the digitalization of our lives, right, 10, 20 years ago, like we had very little digital trace. And now there's so much information everywhere about what we do, like, you know, it's it's funny um, in the kind of conspiracy about the vaccine where people are worried about like, you know, trackers being injected with the vaccine. You're like, well, come to realize your phone is tracking you. Like, we don't need another tracker. We already <laughs> have one. It's called your phone. Right. And like Google has all that data about where you are, what you're like, if they wanted to know what you're saying, they could like all of that already exists. Right. So there definitely is something around that, that to some extent can be scary, right? If it falls under the wrong hands. But there's absolutely something to, uh, to be said about how it is going to be transformational. It's hard to think in like disruptive innovation. We're right. built to think in incremental, but there are definitely like big things that are likely to happen that will dramatically change how we do business, how we interact with AI. And it's funny, like even like the whole metaverse thing, it's still very incremental, right? It's still like, okay, same thing, but now in a digital world, but there's something that can go way beyond that and, and transcend it. I mean, there's a question to be met or something to be said about if an AI is able to analyze every single one of your meetings, it could almost start learning how you think, like, what are your affinities? What are the things that you're likely to agree or disagree with? And then you could imagine this AI basically running 10 meetings in parallel in your stead because it kind of knows for a lot of the decisions what it is you're going to say or what it is you're going to agree with or disagree with. And then we could almost compress all of our like weak meetings into 30 minutes of an AI running that meeting with the AIs of the other people and we can focus on something else, right? That's like completely disruptive and it's not like the increment of like, oh yeah, let's do meetings in a metaverse. I mean, great. Like we're already doing meetings right now on like a video call. There's something about that I think is it's hard to project because 
when we'll see it arrive, it'll be so obvious, but until it arrives, it's hard to imagine. But even just this, right, of thinking we could finally do the Tim Ferriss uh, four-hour work week. For sure, for sure. Yep, just offload everything off to the machines and we, we can enjoy doing the high-value stuff, you know, the stuff that we really enjoy doing. You touched on that a little bit about just you, you mentioned the, in my notes here that, you know, having it being built by people with an engineering background. So I think you're right. I think it's these, it's these technical things that people are thinking about. Hey, I'll apply machines here and apply machines there. But I think once we get into the more creativity side of this, it's going to be very, very interesting because it's going to, it's going to transform all the uses of how we can apply this technology to not just the very simple technology or engineering based things, I guess. Right. And that's the exciting part of the the time we're living in because we are at the point where a lot of the fundamental blocks are being put together to make it easy for everyone to run AI, right? So in the world of Mad Kudu, like we are packaging data science and machine learning for non-technical people to be able to run predictive models in the scope of like go to market. But that's like one kind of use case. But if you think of what GPT-3 is, right, that is an amazing project. They managed to build these like neural nets that are trained, I mean, on natural language processing and package them in a way that now people can use all this intelligence and build apps on top of it. So I was testing this app where you can create a song in the style of Kanye West, if you want, you just like say, hey, I want a Kanye West song and I wanted to talk about kudus and it just like spits out this whole song in his style. And I think the applications there are, are amazing because someone without a technical background, which potentially just was a design background, who's thinking of like, this is a problem that I see in the world and I would like to help people solve it, can now skip the technical part of having to build all this AI and actually can build with the existing blocks. And I think that is going to unleash a ton of innovation because now the barrier is no longer going to be, you know, access to computer science major and you can actually leverage all that packaged intelligence to actually build stuff on top of. So we really are putting together the building blocks. And I think we're going to see a huge amount of new products coming out around that. Really comes down to, yeah, I, I guess in some ways just democratizing, you know, the, the accessibility to all of this. My background has been a lot on the internet of things over the past 10 years or so. And I think when I go and speak to people, and I said this five, six years ago, because when like the Raspberry Pi Zero came out for like five bucks, like anybody could hook a sensor up to a thing and run it. And the internet's becoming more and more ubiquitous, at, you know, everywhere. So now you have people all over the world that for, you know, between five and $10 can essentially start bringing products online and, you know, sensing data in the physical world and uh, translating in, it into digital. It's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's very, very powerful to, to bring those tools to the masses. And another tool, I think, in the AI space that I find absolutely incredible is, uh, I think it's still in private beta right now, but GitHub just launched their product called Copilot, which essentially could think of it as it's scanning Stack Overflow and recommending the function, the code that you should write to do what you're trying to do. So in your, let's say in, in visual code, which is Microsoft's uh, code editing software, if you say, create a API call that does XYZ, then GitHub is actually going to auto-complete and recommend the code for you to write to do what you just described. So even that is like reducing the barrier to writing code. And I tested this uh, a couple of weeks ago and I was able to write this entire like mini app with the recommendations. And I never once went online to search for any kind of function, just like 
I had to think about the architecture, which is still like very engineering because you have to know how to build apps. But still, the, the fact that it abstracted all the technical complexity, I could have written it in any language I wanted because it would have recommended, you know, the Python functions or in JavaScript or, or whatever. And that is just an amazing lowering of the technical barrier to be a, being able to, you know, create anything. And as you said, right, like tools like the Raspberry Pi, which allow pretty much almost anyone to get access to computing power or like a small computer. This like allows more people to start building on this. And we don't just have engineers designing the future for, uh, for the world, because I think that today is how we see it. And I'm very optimistic that that's not how the world is going to continue. It is the way it is where we have, you know, the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Elon Musk, and like these very like strong engineering background people that are kind of leading the way because we're still building the foundational blocks. But once we're done with that, we're going to see the emergence of, I think, more, you know, design oriented or design strong background folks who are actually going to lead the next generation of, of tools that are going to change the way we interact, the way we work, the way we live. Ah, totally, man. As you were speaking about design, there's a book by Daniel Pink. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He has a book called A Whole New Mind. It really talks about sort of right brain thinking. Right. And that we're all sort of brought up in this, in this logical left brain, you know, thing where it's like, if you're an engineer, you know, you have to learn math and you have to learn STEM, STEM based careers and all that type of stuff. And it's, it's very, very structured. And what he argues in the book is, is that all worked for, you know, basically 20th century, but in the 21st century, it's not. Yeah, it's, that's not what you're going to want. And in fact, that's not where the value comes comes in. And kind of back to what we were saying earlier, it's like, you know, if you're just a regimented person doing tasks over and over again, your job is the first thing that's going to be actually automated. It's the creative side of it, you know, that is, it's actually is where you're going to bring the value to the market. And that's where you'll be doing the four hour work week is on those types of tasks. And this is something that I'm actually, I've been pitching at my engineering school back in, in France was, I wish there was a hacking class that was taught because I think we're, yes, we had like, you know, like classic, like C++ and like compiler code and like understanding all of that, which is great. Like you understand like how it works in the background, but there's something to be said about pick a problem and figure out how quickly you can build a solution based on all the tools that exist. Right. And that's the thing that that's the job that's not going to get automated in the future. As you said, right. Building compiler code. Yes, there are going to be folks and. I have friends who work on the compiler code at Facebook. Their job is secure, but that's like three people in the world rewriting how like PHP gets compiled at Facebook because of the massive scale. But for the rest of us, there's something to be said about how do I take all the blocks that exist and solve a problem for someone, validate that this problem is worth solving, and then figure out how I scale that. And I love the Raspberry Pi for this because it allows you to build really quick prototypes to solve for things and like, patch things together and this whole concept of hacking and having hackathons where you have a 24-hour limit and within 24 hours you have to ship something that's functional that proves your hypothesis and is you know like test if there's value in this i think that is a class that absolutely needs to be taught in every single engineering school to force people out of the mentality of it's just like writing the the right code with you know, the right constructors and all that stuff is still helpful to understand in the background, but probably going to become less and less important in the future. And that to me, that was the best experience. I was very fortunate to be able to go to the Stanford Design School 
And that was my first exposure to really design thinking and, you know, thinking like user first and trying to put together like very basic prototypes just to test that. I think it, it really opened my mind to going like beyond just like the technical aspect of, you know, just building and optimizing for the execution of whatever you're building. Yeah, awesome. I think design thinking is is a really, really great approach. Are you, are you guys bring that into your company in a lot of these aspects as well? We bring a lot of the concepts. So twice a month, we have a half day on the product team where we just like build things and prototype them. And we have some of the taxonomy that I took back from, at least from design thinking of like, are you doing a critical function prototype, a critical experience prototype? It's funny how often having words to put around the concepts help people kind of think that way. If you're thinking I'm building a critical experience prototype, it doesn't really matter how you're building it. It's just like, does it test the experience or mm -hmm. saying, telling people this is a Wizard of Oz prototype. So it doesn't matter if it works, even if it's someone like doing things in the background. And when I click on a button, there's actually someone typing the answer that should be displayed. It's fine, but it's a good way to test if, if it's valuable or not. And it surprisingly frees people's minds when they have a name to it. They're okay with it not actually working and just being a Wizard of Oz prototype. And so I found that alone to be incredibly useful to allow people to think freely and, and to go crazy. And then there's a lot of things around, you know, how you do user research and, and having user research at the core of everything you build. I think that element is a, a big component that I, I brought back from, you know, the overall methodology of design thinking. That's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I like the Wizard of Oz approach. I guess I hadn't really heard that, but it's kind of ignore the man behind the curtain, right? For Forget about the implementation details. How, how am I actually going to use this thing as the end user? And you can sort of gloss over because we'll we'll solve the technology problem in the back end, you know? But I think the, the main question is, is does this experience provide value to me as the end user, which you want to get to as soon as possible? Right, because there's nothing more frustrating or sadder, I guess, than to actually build the back end implementation only to realize it's not valuable. I mean, the, the experience is not great. And they're like, well, great, we just wasted a bunch of time. And we could have tested this super easily with the Wizard of Oz prototype. And I see a lot of companies struggle with this and a lot of engineers struggle with it where like the first like reflex is like, let me go into the code and like build something instead of figuring out a way to actually mimic the experience to test its value before actually building anything. For sure. We talked about some specific, you know, one of the things I like to think about is a little bit of like narrow AI versus sort of this general artificial intelligence, right? And so it feels to me like, and I would like to get your opinion on this, but it feels like, yes, we have created some very interesting problems that we've been able to solve, right? Very narrow data sets to allow us to write code, to allow us to write music, actually. I think about Grammarly and even just some of the auto-completion in, in, in Gmail. That's pretty cool, right? It's making me a better writer and it's picking up all sorts of stuff beyond simple punctuation. It's actually finishing sentences for me. So that's awesome. But I mean, it still feels like it's their specifically purposed built AIs. There's no, you know, to use sort of like general computing standpoint, there is no general processor out there to sort of do all of this. Do you think we'll get to that someday? Have you, you seen, you know, glimmers of that? Or even like, like what would that mean to, to us as humans? Kind of thinking kind of like high level here. I don't think we ever will. The level of, or at least when we look at AI, it, and even as we have it today and how we design it, it's excellent, like beyond even what human capabilities in one dimension. And even on the computing side, right? Like there is a reason why we have CPUs and GPUs. Like GPUs are great at matrix operations and like CPUs are not that great at it, but then GPUs are terrible for like reading. 
So the same way that, you know, we have these like computing powers that are optimized for different things, I do think AIs are going to keep on being built on that because there's still an element of, you could say arguably like they're, you know, you don't have to necessarily train it specifically. It can be unsupervised, it can learn some tactics and it can become creative. I think, I don't think AI is always only going to mimic what, or recreate what's what it has seen. I think we saw that with, um, was it DeepMind? I think, uh, no, not DeepMind. The name of the, was it DeepGo? What was the name of the algorithm that played Go? I think you're right. I think it, I think was, it was DeepMind. by IBM. Was that the IBM one? No, no, it's the Google one. Oh, the Google one. So I highly recommend if anyone has, you know, if you have time to waste. I mean, there's like one moment when it was playing against the Go uh, master and the algorithm played the most awkward play ever made. Like nobody understood. It's so funny because, I mean, it was like a big event and you had like like this TV cast and like there was this like expert who's like moving the little go pieces to kind of show what was going on on the, on the board. And when the algorithm played, you see the, you know, the expert there take the piece and look at the board. It's like, wait, no, this doesn't make sense. Right. Like what the algorithm did was never seen before, made absolute no sense. And that's incredible because it means that it was able to create a new strategy that it hadn't seen before. And so I do think we'll see creation, but it's still like something that, you know, specific to go in that case, where it's optimized for something very, very specific. I think having an AI that can do and think almost like a human brain, I don't think we'll get there. But to some extent, I feel like that's, you know, it's part of believing in something greater than just like, you know, the electric wiring in our brains. And there's something more to, to who we are than that. Yeah, for sure. I was Googling real quick. It was AlphaGo, right? AlphaGo, yeah. thank you. Yeah, to, yeah. To, uh, did this, but, but yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it's like a, a five-year-old, you know, understands, you know, how to bounce a ball and what's going to happen. And a computer is very, very difficult to be able to just very simple concepts, right? And even recognizing patterns within, within certain things. I think even, you know, young kids can see the creativity in that where I, I think it's going to be difficult for a computer to mimic as well. Well, yeah. So, you know, I, I guess what, what are some other things you like to do outside of your uh, professional life? Are there other hobbies, stuff you, stuff you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a big time, big time surfer. That's the beauty of living in the, or close to, to Santa Cruz. And it's a great sport to kind of, it's my own way of doing meditation, right? Like looking at the horizon, waiting for the waves to come, trying to be in the right position. You have to be in the moment and, and be there, which kind of is, is a good way to, I guess, meditate, right? Which is about clearing your brain of anything else and focusing on what's happening. And, and if you don't, then you take the wave on the nose and you get like <laughs> dropped all the way back to the shore. So it's a, there, there's an obligation to be in the moment. So I, I really enjoy that. And then I also play this European sport called handball, team handball at a like high competitive level. Uh, we're actually the U.S. national champions with uh, the San Francisco team. And we're fortunate enough to fly to Saudi Arabia this year for the World Cup of Clubs. Wow. Where we got to play against like some of the top teams in Europe, like Barcelona and, and all of those. So that takes a lot of time. A lot of my evenings are like handball practice. That's awesome. And, and is that, is that like inside of an enclosed area? Kind of like, like I've, I've played a lot of racquetball in the past, right? So is it like that, except with your hands? So it's not the one against the wall. It's more like imagine water polo without the water. I see. Okay. So you have two goal posts, on, like the goals on each side and you pass the ball. It's a uh, size three. So it's, yeah, just big enough that you can, it's a little bit smaller than a water polo one. 
I see. Okay. So, but you can palm it with your hands yes, and you just sort exactly. of throwing it back and forth and kind of a uh, number, like how many players are on a side? Is it kind of like soccer? So it's six on the court and one goalie. And you have this a kind of half circle area in front of the goal where players cannot step into. So you kind of have this defense zone where like the six player in defense wrap around the zone and then the offense is kind of tactically moving the ball, the ball side to side, trying to create space. It's like very, very high uh, contact. Mm. High intensity okay. and super fast game. It's I'm still surprised that it's not bigger in the U.S. because I feel like it it combines the show of basketball. It's fast paced, just like basketball. Intensity is close to American football, and it's a really high scoring game. It's great on TV, but it is yeah historically it's really huge in Europe. It's big in South America, growing in in Asia and in the U.S. Trying to to grow it more. So we also coach a bunch of schools and. Uh, PE teachers to have them introduce handball in their high schools and middle schools to kind of grow the sport uh, here. That's awesome. Well, good luck uh, in the national champions. That uh, that would be that would be great. When when is that going to be? This year is in May and most likely in Detroit. Okay, I don't think you want to go to Saudi Arabia in the summer, will you? No, we Seems were there in in October and it was still it was like I don't know in Fahrenheit. Unfortunately, it was thirty four degrees Celsius all the time. Yeah, like, day and night it doesn't change. It's just warm all the time. Oh man, crazy, crazy. You know, the other thing I like to ask people who've been on the show is, you know, thinking about your career, any sort of advice, I guess, to people that are maybe coming out of school, things that you have done along the way that have allowed you to sort of advance in just in technology in general, AI, you know, whatever it is, any words of wisdom, I guess. Yeah, I think one big thing is, so either if you already have a job and if you're at a company, 100% sure there are data science problems that you can solve. And there is a way to just Take on the side project. Don't spend more than 10% of your uh, time on it, but look for things that you could, you know, improve with data. And could be in any area of the business, could be like financial forecasting. It could be, you know, costs. It could be, you know, on the go-to-market side, you know, are we going to hit our numbers? All that kind of stuff. And interacting with that data and trying to figure out how you would solve the problem is super helpful. And usually because you're at the company, you have access to the data. So that's pretty straightforward. If you don't have a job yet, or if you're kind of like still a student, or even if you you have a job and you don't really have time to invest to get access to data, I would say meetups and hackathons, I think are, are an awesome way to discover the world of AI. Because often there's the mental barrier of not even knowing how to get started on the project. And the cool thing about a lot of the hackathons that are run is that you get, you know, you can get paired with people and you get paired with someone who has already done this or like, you know, join a team that has some experience. It's a really great way in a short period of time to have to solve a problem, to see how they think about solving the problem. And what you'll see is after two or three, you become much better at doing these. And I would say once you've done one or two with people around you to help, there's a website that I love, which is drivendata.org. Essentially, it's like Kaggle competitions. It's like data science and machine learning competitions, but for for non to help nonprofit organizations with different problems. So they have this one that I recommend a lot of people start with, which is predicting if you have a list of water pumps in Africa and you're trying to predict which ones are uh, going to break down in the near future based on historical data, based on information about the area, rainfall, all that kind of stuff. It's a good way to start thinking about how would you approach building that prediction and just like, iterate, iterate, iterate to get to better and better predictions. And you can kind of compare to the historical level of predictions people got. So it's a really good way to get your hands dirty and to, to play around with it. That's phenomenal. Awesome. Yeah, I will definitely drop that for sure in the notes. 
yeah, as we kind of like wind down here, how, how can people get a hold of you, Francis? What's what's the best way? Um, usually fairly active on, on Twitter or on LinkedIn. So they can, yeah, feel free to hit me up there and connect. I'm more than happy to give advice and figure out how or if I can help in any way. Yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely say amen to the meetups and, and the hackathons. You know, if, if people are listening to this podcast, you know, we, we have a monthly meetup that we meet on the first Thursday of the month. You know, it's all they, they were in person before the pandemic hit, but now, you know, it's the beauty of, I guess, going virtual with everything is we can bring in speakers from all over and we can have attendees come from all over. And I also also started an Internet of Things Hack Day, IoT Hack Day here in the Twin Cities. Started that in 2015 and brought together people. And it's like, what could you build in 12 hours? And so it was a sort of a 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. event where people came in and they brought in Raspberry Pis and pick processors or anything like that that they really wanted just just to try and try and have some fun together. And actually a couple, two, there were actually were two startups that came out of this event that we did that actually ended up moving on and actually getting funding and their products are now in the market. So yeah, it can turn into some really, really beautiful things. So I totally agree with you on that. In any case, it's always valuable. Like even if it doesn't turn into a company, there's something so rewarding about building anything. Like I I love that feeling. And I think everyone does it. Like at the end, like seeing your creation work is just incredible. Like I built a garage door opener with a Raspberry Pi. So I could on my phone, click on a button and it would open the garage door. And then I, I was flying back to Europe. And so from Europe, I called my wife. I said, hey, I'm going to open the garage door. I opened it. And <laughs> it's it's incredibly nerdy, but that feeling is is amazing. And that one site I will recommend for people, especially if they're coming to your meetup for the Internet of Things, is instructables.com. That website has a ton of how-tos on, and they have a specific section for Raspberry Pis where you have projects that'll go from something that can be built in 30, 40 minutes all the way to something that's going to take a lot longer. We have to do maybe some soldering and things like that. You can end up building your own tablet with a Raspberry Pi and a touchscreen. And it's like, it's not that hard, actually. It's right. so cool to, to do it. I, I rebuilt a Sonos, which is the Bluetooth speaker system mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with Raspberry Pis because now the Raspberry Pis have built-in Bluetooth. So you just have to configure it to be a speaker, plug in your whatever, like $5 speakers that you can buy and now you just have your phone connect to the raspberry pi and play some music and it's again it doesn't have to solve world hunger but there's something about building this and flexing that muscle of creativity of building things and realizing it's actually simpler than it seems to build and that makes it then easier to go and solve bigger problems because you know you can build all the steps along the way into the the bigger project Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. People need to get a couple wins under their belts, right? And you, you, even if it's just a couple small steps, you're right. It gives you that confidence to go ahead and move forward with it for sure. Well, great, Francis. I appreciate the time today. Really appreciate your your perspective and, and everything. And, you know, it sounds like you guys have a really interesting product. Sounds like you actually have a really interesting sort of culture that you built at Mad Kudu. And, you know, wish you guys nothing but the best. And I'm sure you'll be evolving. I'm sure you're through, throughout your career and applying AI and machine learning in all sorts of new ways in the future. So best of luck to you. And thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a blast. You've listened to another episode of the Conversations on Applied AI podcast. We hope you are eager to learn more about applying artificial intelligence and deep learning within your organization. You can visit us at AppliedAI.mn to keep up to date on our events and connect with our amazing community. 
Please don't hesitate to reach out to Justin at AppliedAI.mn if you are interested in participating in a future episode. Thank you for listening.